0: Locked On Podcast Network and State Farm present Paving the Way, a new series highlighting important voices across Locked On's network. Every month, our host Kanani Stevens will showcase other Locked On hosts who come from underserved communities to hear the challenges they face to become a sports broadcast personality. Who will be paving the way this episode? Find out now. Locked On Podcast Network and State Farm are presenting Paving the Way, a new series highlighting important voices across Locked On's network. I'm Kainani Stevens, and every month we will showcase other Locked On hosts who come from underserved communities to hear the challenges that they have faced in their sports media journey. On this episode, we will be talking to Chris Carter, host of Locked On Steelers. Chris grew up in Pittsburgh and started his professional career as a lawyer. State Farm believes it's important to champion diverse voices and create positive impacts in our neighborhoods. That's why our good neighbors at State Farm are proud to support the Paving the Way series and their mission to provide support to underserved communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. On this edition of Paving the Way, we are joined by Chris Carter from Locked On Steelers. Chris, you are a man of many talents and you are love pittsburgh that's where you grew up so tell us a little bit about your childhood and kind of what got you so into sports at a young age
1: uh well thank you Kanani, for having me this is always great to talk about these kind of things um i grew i did grow up in pittsburgh i grew up in the point breeze homewood area uh, the east end of the city um and i kind of was born into sports just because of the nature of my family my family loved sports uh my father coached football for many years he was a he was also a teacher in the pittsburgh public school system um and I think I definitely grew my love of just kind of being around his team. He coached the Peabody Highlanders, uh, a, 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 a you know the local team in the East end of Pittsburgh. Um, and I loved being around those guys. I love being around my dad. But like I got to know so many players over the years. And I mean, I literally, I was there from like when I was like five years old until I was about going to high school playing against those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It was always really cool to see my dad be a leader and also to get perspective on, you know, because I, I followed the team and I'd be the water boy, I'd be the ball boy. I would just help carry things. I wanted to be part of all these these cool kids, you know, from around the city. And um, it, it definitely had an influence on just how I saw sports, because, you know, eventually, you know, when I started to get older, I would read the newspapers that covered the games that these guys played. And I would be like, wow, that wasn't fair, like this thing that was said here and there. Um, and that of course, sort of started to start, uh, shape my mind. Then of course my, my whole family diehard Steelers fans, cause everyone's mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh. Uh, my dad, you know, coached football, played football in high school. My uncle Ben played college football, um, and, you know, and, and played there. My, my, my grandfather was, uh, you know, he, he, even he, he was a starting quarterback in high school football way back in like the thirties. So, um, you know, it, it it had been kind of ingrained in my family. It was one of the cooler things when I was a kid. Was my grandpa would come over and watch every Steelers game with us, and that was mm-hmm. how I got to kind of know him uh, in, in him in the later part of his life. So it was always something that kind of allowed me to center myself and use it as an example. Say like, hey, like you know, the fairness that you would that that I wanted to see in talking about these players, and like you know, from the high school kids that I knew while I was a kid and that I looked up to, to the NFL players that I watched on TV it was kind of a connection that I used to kind of, I guess, create my, the way that I see sports and the way that I want to talk about sports, because I try to think of these athletes as people and not as just, you know, celebrities who we discuss on shows. And that's why like you know, I rarely ream out a player. Or if I say like, Hey, they did bad. I always try to, you know, make sure there's a, a clear, disconnect from player plays poorly to player is a bad person. And cause that's what often happens in our sport is that, Oh, this guy's worthless. And I'm like, okay, a little much there. And like, I always thought about, you know, cause there were times I saw that written about a high school player and I'm like, gosh, like that, that, that kid's like 16 and we're, we're really talking that bad about him, And so I don't know, it was just, that was definitely part of what played into my role. I, I love Pittsburgh. I went away for four years, came right back. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it was definitely part of my formative years of, learning how to think about sports and shaping the way that I approach it.
0: At that point, when you were younger, when you were looking at writers, you mentioned some that kind of went the way you wouldn't have gone with covering a story. Was there any that you really got, you know, would read every week or someone that you followed that you felt like did a really good job? Or is that something that you didn't feel like was there and you wanted to kind of do that yourself?
1: So as far as the local high school, see, I I couldn't remember enough of the like who yeah. wrote the high school stories, but I, the first time I felt you know every a lot of black people we will we, we relate to Stuart Scott because of the excitement that he brought to Sports mm-hmm. Center and the highlights but the 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 first like black voice that, that comes to my mind when thinking of people in sports media was John Saunders my father used to love this show sports reporters that appeared Sunday mornings and it would be sports reporters from across the country sitting at a round table and just talking for 30 minutes about the big topics of of the day and uh, there were a bunch of white guys, Jason Whitlock and John Saunders, and you know yeah. Jason <laughs> Jason yeah. Whitlock is Jason Whitlock. He's a black man, and but he represents a lot of things that a lot of black people don't identify with. And John Saunders would be often that times that lone voice on a black issue that kind of that represent that I felt represented by, like you know when. Uh, there was there was a time when Jason Whitlock was saying Serena Williams looked like an ape and that she was unattractive and that she wasn't that good. And and John Saunders, was like she just won like four great grand slams. What are you talking about? Like like and like he would he would bring reason to things and he would you know bring perspective into conversations that no one else would on that show. And I always appreciated that. And like that was a, a bonding point for myself and my father, because he would talk about like, hey, like, you know, these are people that I respect in how they cover sports. And my father was, you know, was a music teacher and a, and a football coach. He never studied journalism for a day in his life, but you know, he consumed sports media still does to this day. He gives me opinions whenever I, you know, t- am on TV or radio or podcasting and, or, or you're know, writing in a newspaper or something. So, um, so, you know, that, that was kind of, I think John Saunders was the first guy to be kind of like, Hey, like if I'm, if I ever did this business, I'd want to approach it like him and the way that he does on that show.
0: And we talk a lot about representation on the show because it's hard to sometimes envision yourself doing something. If you don't see someone like you doing it already. Um, So obviously for him to be able to do that and be like seeing someone doing what you want to do the right way is huge um, for anybody when you're trying to get into a new field. So can you take us a little bit through um, your kind of how you got into media because you went a different route at first and then kind of came back to sports.
1: I certainly did. Um, so I went to Chain University, the first HBCU, uh, on a uh, for political science. Uh, my plan was to go to law school, and uh, Chain University they gave me a full academic ride, and they had a program where if I finished with a certain like GPA and a certain like, and if I finished like you know among the top of my class, I'd get a full ride to law school. Um, and so I went there. I loved it. I loved the HBCU experience, I love the Cheney experience. It was a wonderful place where I learned a lot about myself. I was in the marching band, the NAACP, student government. I I, I love that place. And uh that's one of my that 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 is a forever a home for me. And it helped me find comfort because when I was in Pittsburgh and I loved Pittsburgh, but mm-hmm. there was there was a, there was still a sense of like, you know, like when I went to Alderdice and I loved Alderdice, but Alderdice had a lot of racial problems. Like, you know, there were just, you know, there were neo-Nazis that I went to school with. There were kids who I knew didn't like me because of, because of the way I looked. There were kids that, you know, I was in the scholars classes and the AP classes, and they deny that slavery was that bad or things like that. And it was just like having to, to argue for my identity, having to fight for my place in in a place and you know being a light-skinned black person you know it was it was kind of like you know fighting for acceptance every day when i went to cheney that was never an issue i was just accepted and loved and sure there were bumps in the road like there's like there is everybody everywhere but like that was the place where i was like Whoa! Like I can be great at things, and I always knew I was good at things. You know, I was mm-hmm. captain on a football team. I was leader of a marching band. It, it, you know, at, at Alderdice. I, I had you know, I had you know, summa cum laude honors and things like that. But there was like a, still a sense in me that like you know, eh, I'm I'm just I'm decent at things. But Cheney was where like no, you can be great, and that set me into you know, into a part of my life where like, you know, I I was a leader. I was looked at, you know, a lot of people saw a lot of the things that I did and I was able to accomplish things. Um, And so then when I went to, you know, my number one goal was to get back into Pittsburgh by going to the University of Pittsburgh's uh, you know, school of law. I got accepted into it and I did get the scholarship, but um, there was an issue because my senior year, I was student government president and there, uh, there was a new governor, Tom Corbett, And he slashed the scholarship programs that Chain University had. And in doing Mm -hmm. so, we were basically in alarm because like these were this included the scholarship I was about to get, the scholarship that I had uh, that I had. And these were the two pillars that attracted, you know, the better students from across the country to Chain University. So we had Mm -hmm. to go into major activism mode. Uh, I I worked at the end of my connections in the NAACP, we organized a ton of student events, we had a walkout on campus, we went to Harrisburg several times, we had rallies at Harrisburg, and our efforts ultimately ended up fruitful. Uh, State Senator Vincent Hughes, who was probably our best ally, said if it wasn't for our organization and the, the people that we got out, that they would not have had the ammunition to protect our scholarships in the state legislature. So the scholarships were protected, but the problem became I was told less than a month before I was to start my time at Pitt Law that I would not receive the scholarship. And I was told by this, by someone who's, at, by, that worked at the state, um, at the state of, it was PASHI, like our state education board. And, you know, I asked, well, why is that? I I had the highest GPA of all political science students at, at my school. I was first in line. I did everything I was supposed to. What did I do wrong? And they said, we're not at liberty to tell you. And the person who I spoke with was, was, a, was a person I had you know, I had spoken with before and I knew that they weren't, you know, trying to, that they weren't, they they were disappointed that this had happened. And I said, well, did this have anything to do with me kind of being the face of the movement that we pushed to get the scholarships back? And she said, that's a pretty good guess, but I still am not at liberty to say. And so that kind of tipped off like, well, I was the sacrificial lamb of that moment. So I went to law school. I had a smaller scholarship that I had earned through Pitt, um, Mm -hmm. you know, but uh, but yeah, so that kind of, you know, that brought me back and I was like, well, you know, sometimes when you do fight for things, there are consequences and mm-hmm. things like that happen. And so I went to law school, you know, and I enjoyed law school. It was a different experience because again, like, you know, I went from not having to fight for my acceptance to, you know, having to do with classmates that were like, yeah, I'm glad Trayvon Martin died. I'm glad that the, that, that these, the, these, like those things are happening. And I'm like, well, that's, that's an adjustment because, you know, when you're at an HBCU, when sad things happened to Black people, it was kind of like a man. Yeah, that's like it was like a community thing where you all understood, and there didn't have to be a, a big, you know, session where we all talk about it. And and we did we did talk about it, but there wasn't that sense of hatred coming from that direction. And I dealt with that in law school, and um, you know, I, I graduated. Uh, you know, I I, still, I enjoyed my time at, at, at Pitt Law, uh, but the whole time, you know, I was trying to find a way to make money. You make you work a lot of unpaid internships to try to work your way up in that field. And uh, there was one time what got me started in sports was, um, you know, I was I was working an unpaid internship for the federal public defender's office. Great experience, awesome, mm-hmm. but I needed money, and I was just like struggling. And my mom sent me this email of a Craigslist ad, and she was like, "Hey, this this these guys are looking for a Steelers blogger." You love football. You and the whole time, like I read everything football. I studied things. I, got, yeah. I, I, me and my dad talked football every day because he's a coach. I used to like watch him break down film on his high school team, and then we would the things that I learned from that I would apply to. Oh wow, I see that with the Steelers and like you know this type of defense or this type of offense and how and the, the fundamentals that went into each play. And I was like, man, like if more people could talk like that in sports, I think that that would be. A a, a big help. And so I started writing for this small blog uh, behind the steel curtain. Didn't pay me much. Like at most it was ever $100 a month, but it was it was like occasionally the extra like, you know, money to go out money to take my Mm -hmm. girlfriend on a date, things like that. And, you know, that was kind of where it started. And then you know, when I finished law school, I just kept up with it because it was something that wasn't too taxing. And like I could write about, you know, the Steelers or sports in my sleep and, you know, compared to, you know, drafting an appeal. Uh, so uh, that kind of led to me sticking with it. And then, you know, eventually after doing it, I got better at, you know, I learned how to you know cut up film. I started to put that in articles, you know, while I'm still in my legal career, I'm, you know, working for different offices and things, but I would blog on the side and then eventually, you know, people started to notice like, Hey, that guy knows what he's talking about. And that led to me to get more opportunities in Pittsburgh, uh, where I was starting to uh, get real notice. I was start to get published more. I'd be asked to come on radio shows, asked to do TV. And that was kind of how it started and built itself up from, you know, I was always a good writer. I always loved writing. Um, but, uh, you know, I never studied journalism, just kind of read my favorite people and, and, and grew from there. So that was how it all kind of kick started and. Here we are today. I'm hosting like five podcasts.
0: <laughs> there you go. And all the different mediums, too, because I mean, you write, you go on TV mm-hmm. as well. So um, it, what do you take from each of those mediums? Like what's kind of your favorite things or what do you like to do? Because you you mentioned you like to do different aspects of it. So what are some things that you enjoy now that you're kind of
1: doing it full time? Man, uh, it is tough because I love I love writing because I like I can. One thing that that's always been told me is that I am that I I'm very good at kind of getting my voice into my writing. Like you know, people when people you know read my stuff and they they know me, they're like, Chris, I can hear your voice when when you talk. Like oftentimes, like I'm when I'm reading in my head, I hear my own voice, but it's like when I read your stuff, I hear your voice, and I'm like, I don't know what does that. I don't know if there's a trick to that. It's just that's just the passion that I have that I try to get it there. And so I love being able to you know, tell things about a story. Like right now I'm covering pit basketball and I got to write an amazing story about an assistant coach, Milan Brown, who suffered cardiac arrest last last May. And it took every person around him realizing what was happening, knowing where the AEDs were, calling 911, doing CPR and then getting him to the hospital so quickly to save his life. And now he's back coaching for Pitt basketball mm-hmm. and they're having an amazing season, you know, being able to write that story and put it out there and then to hear from the people who, you know, I, I, they told me this, their, their stories and their parts in that, you know, that was truly special. So I, I love that part of writing when I can write something that people identify with. And then the people that weren't involved with, it, they're like, wow, that's an amazing story. I didn't know that. All right. I, you know, I didn't, it, this, this brought, you know, this way of thinking to me, because after that, one people way was like, I need to know where AEDs are in my building. I need to know how to do CPR. And, you know, with the Mar Hamlin issue, that was something that had just happened in a, a former pit player himself.
0: Chris, you touched on this a little bit, but do you have any advice for those that are looking to get into sports media in the future?
1: I, one thing I encourage a lot of young people, I talk to a lot of like pit students who are, who are in media. Mm-hmm. And one thing I tell them all is do everything. Write in, you know, write articles, write analysis pieces, write think pieces, uh, you know, do podcasts, do radio, do TV, because you never know what's the main thing that plugs you in. And you're right. I wear a lot of hats. I write for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which is, you know, the top newspaper in Pittsburgh. Uh, covering pit athletics. I do the Locked On Steelers podcast. I am a regular guest on the Final Word TV show, which is much like sports reporters, a just a Pittsburgh panel of sports of sports reporters who just come together at Sunday nights and just talk the, the big topics of, of the week um on that show. I do a high school uh highlights football show uh you know for for our local NBC station. Um I'm probably forgetting things that I do. But but that's the thing is I've lined up my put myself in a position where I'm able to use all of those talents and show like, Hey, like I know what I'm talking about. I do my research and I bring passion to everything that I do. And I encourage a lot of people that if this is the direction that you're headed in, that's what you focus that you, you try to make sure that you have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. As far as my favorite, I'll, it's, it's tough to pick because I love writing. I love, I think the biggest thing is being able to talk with people and bring mm-hmm. out Good ideas, good stories and good ways to make people think that the, the same way that I used, I would frame sports to how I would, would tackle the world. Like, you know, uh, like, like I said, when I was younger,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I try to do, you know, have stories or have thought pieces that get that for people that they can give that to people when they consume the content that I create, whether it's an article or a podcast or a TV show or a radio hit. That's what I try to do. So I'm not sure if there's a medium that I prefer. Like you know, I love being on TV. I guess if I was saying TV's fun because it's you know it's something that I always that I connect to, and that I know that when I'm on TV, there are plenty of Black people around Pittsburgh that are like, "Hey, man, Mm -hmm. you represent us," and that means the world to me. whenever I interact with someone and they say that, and I'm like, "Man," like to hear that from somebody, it's like it's like it, it pictures me being the John Saunders for someone else. I'm not that I'm on John Saunders' level right now, but it, it pictures if I can inspire anybody to say, hey, I can do that, that is a that is a big mission accomplished for me.
0: And to take it a step further you're from Pittsburgh it's different like to you mm-hmm. you you know it you in and out and and I think that's what makes you probably more trustworthy to a lot of people is because you've been there you've seen it you've been through everything with them and and to cover that from that perspective always I think gives it more of a genuine quality and makes it a bit more authentic.
1: Thank you yeah um that's definitely part of it and You know, because that's that's the other thing is that when people see me, they're like, "Oh yeah, I know that guy." Like, like they see me, they see me, you know, at the gas station, or they see me at this community event where I'm working at. Because I still, I'm on the board of directors for multiple local nonprofits that I, you know, I occasionally I'll try to. One thing I try to do every year is, uh, for the Community Empowerment Association and the Kingsley Association, two groups that I help with, I try to make sure that every year their kids get. To, to, they they can sign up whatever kids that they want, and they get to go to Steelers training camp, and they'll get like the VIP experience of being on the sidelines. They maybe get to interact with some players and, and get that opportunity just to be like, hey, like this is this environment, and these are some of these kids are like, yeah, I never knew that this thing was out here, uh, and and like I never thought I could be close to NFL players that I see on TV and stuff. Um, And you know, I try want to bring those experiences to people. So yeah, it, it is it is really cool to do that, and also to represent. um. You know, black thoughts in Pittsburgh media because you know, like Mike Tomlin is a beloved coach across the country. And if you listen to national platforms, there's always like Mike Tomlin, that guy's the greatest coach. I think the the situation in Pittsburgh, there's a lot of people who bash him day in, day out. He's terrible, he's bad. And it's like, well, has he ever had a losing season? Well, no, but he hasn't won more than one Super Bowl. And I'm like, well, how many coaches have? And and so oftentimes I'll be that voice who sticks up for Mike Tomlin or sticks up for any player. You know, when Juju Smith-Schuster was in Pittsburgh because he would TikTok dance, people would say, oh, he's terrible. I'm like, he's actually pretty good. And then, go, like, oh, he'll never do anything with the Chiefs. And I'm like, oh, well, there he is winning a Super Bowl. But trying to bring perspective that, you know, black people can say, hey, yes, thank you. Someone said what I was thinking here. And we don't feel completely shut out because for years I can tell you, like there were a lot of people that were like, man, I can't I can't take some of the sports media in this town um and uh because some of it will be so negative and there would be a lot of rhetoric that would come off anti-black and it would be like man like that's that's not cool like like you know, there's, a, there's not much consideration from this side of the argument so yeah so it does it does mean a lot being a person from here who grew up in it like I as a kid I remember Cordell Stewart a black quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers he had beer dumped on him because he played poorly in games and he would have There were vicious rumors made up about him uh and, and his lifestyle and things that he went through. And he was bashed all the time. And whenever the Steelers lost big games and he was the starter, it was his fault and not Bill Cowers. And then all of a sudden, you know, growing up, I was like, man, I guess that the quarterback is the guy that everyone's going to bash if a team's losing. Then all of a sudden, when it was Ben Roethlisberger being the quarterback and Mike Tomlin being the head coach, it was the head coach's fault. Even when the quarterback would throw five interceptions in a single game. And again, I, I'm a, I grew up, Ben Roethlisberger became the high school quarterback. I became a quarterback when I was in high school at Alderdice. And I was like, man, that guy's great. And so like, I always, as a kid, I was like, man, go, go ahead, Big Ben. But then I noticed how people talked about Ben when he made mistakes versus how they used to talk about Cordell. And Ben is a much better quarterback than Cordell was. But still, it was interesting to see where the blame shifted from when I was a kid, when it was Bill Cower and Cordell Stewart, to when I was an adult, and it was Ben Roethlisberger and Mike Tomlin. And so that is one thing that I try to bring in my coverage is, is is saying like, hey, bringing this perspective over here that there's been a lot of black people in Pittsburgh who have said this and thought this, but they never had a platform. And now when I speak, they're they're like, thank you. Somebody said it.
0: Chris, we talked about representation, but obviously once you get there, I'm sure we've both in, been in positions like this where you feel like you're kind of the minority voice and you kind of have to stand up for maybe points of view that aren't being represented. Um, currently in sports media. That's a tough thing to do for a lot of people, um especially if you haven't been put in that position before. So, can you kind of talk to your experience about that and, you know, what that's been like for you?
1: Uh, absolutely, can I. thank you for bringing that up because that's I think that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of young journalists is finding your voice and finding the confidence to put your voice out there and stand on your own two feet when you're in that situation. And and it's something that I I think I took my time with, and I got more comfortable doing as I started to you know grow in media. Because uh, I used to do it part time, I switched to full time uh, doing this, and that kind of became you know a, a you know a place where I was able to when I started doing it more and more, I got more comfortable with it. But when you're facing people who uh, who think differently than you, and they say things that you're like, there's something wrong here, you know, whether it's being racist or not even racist, but just playing the dog whistles that you can hear that nobody else does and you feel like it's your responsibility to stand up in those moments there's gonna be times where you feel like you know this isn't the time or this isn't the battle because you can't always make the stand all the time because then people will you know' it'll, it'll people will drown you out with with them and then you'll spend your entire time correcting everybody and i think that there's time for you to be pointed about it but I think you should make a point when you're when you're on that platform, when, you know, someone says something controversial or not even controversial, something that they think is just accepted and you have to challenge it to challenge it. And like, for example, uh you know, there was a game years ago where I was on TV talking about the Steelers tied the Browns and Ben Roethlisberger had five turnovers in the game. And when we were talking afterward over, why didn't the Steelers win? Well, there was all heaps of blame. You know, placed on Mike Tomlin on James Conner. You know, he it was James Conner's first start as an NFL player. He had two touchdowns, 120 yards. He fumbled one time earlier in the game, and it was like all this work that I was seeing. I'm like, why are we avoiding talking about the elephant in the room of the 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 highest paid player on the team committed the most turnovers and was abysmal in this game? Why are we avoiding? So I said, and so I brought that up in the show, and then the the person who I was on the show with came back at me and said, you just hate Ben Roethlisberger and There were people who were, who, you know, after that show were like, yeah, Chris hates him because he's white. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I do not. I'm trying to talk objectively about this game here. And we weren't talking objectively about this game. And there were, and there was an overwhelming response against the other side where it was like, no, Chris was right. Like that was something that we needed that, that, that was being framed. And it's always been framed incorrectly. Um, And that, that goes to, you know, from, uh, you know, from talking about Mike Tomlin to talking about coaching hires in the NFL to talking about Colin Kaepernick, you know, because I was I was covering sports when that was going down. And, you know, to see the vitriol that would come out, you know, I, I used to, you know, I do NFL draft coverage. I would write articles about, you know, just weighing, you know, which quarterbacks should be looked at. And when I wrote an article that said Lamar Jackson, the Steelers should make an effort to go get him. There were people saying like, oh, you know, uh, well, he's he's t- too dumb to read a book, let alone a defense. And I'm like, what? What are we doing here? And having the courage to like to, to stand up in those moments, and even when it's not just a random online person that you're interacting with, but like you know a person who has a major TV show or a radio show or a major columnist, it takes guts. But when you do it, I guarantee you that you you do it the right way. You come, you stay based in fact, based it. You know you know, you don't you know you don't, you don't you don't have to reach all the way out and create other speculations. You don't have to do what they do and f- spin the truth. But if you stick with the truth and and base your arguments from that, you will come off feeling stronger and looking stronger and being stronger in your, in your career. And those voices, I'm telling you, frame these conversations. Kanani, I'm sure you've seen them. How, you know, when, when people talk things on national shows, we all, you know, sometimes it can all blur into one big Stephen A. Smith is yelling at this guy today. But. There are plenty of conversations that I think that people take with them and they and they say, well, that's an accepted narrative that X player did this. And that's what this meant and the motivation behind it. Um, And, you know, that's where some people wanted to paint Colin Kaepernick. But there was a big push from a lot of especially uh, black sports reporters who were saying this wasn't the case, you know, for, you know, for, you know, for the years where you know Colin Kaepernick's been out of the league, there were people saying, "Oh, he will. He was turning down really expensive jobs because he didn't. He wanted to be a starter and he had to get paid X amount of money." And Howard Bryant, one of the people that I love to 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 listen to and to to read from, you know, he was saying like, "Absolutely no. I'm in contact with his camp. There was no such offer, and he wouldn't have turned that turned that down." <laughs> like so. Yeah. I think that it's important to be to stand in those moments, and I want to let people. It's not easy, like you know. There's times where you feel that pressure, and you're like, "All right, do I make my move now? Do I say this here?" But it's something that I encourage other people. If you're young, if you're a person of color, you don't have to be black. If you're a per, if you're a person who just sees things, you can be a white a, a white young reporting. You say, "Hey, something is wrong here." Mm-hmm. Feel confident to stand in your moment to use your platform, and that you are going to be able to address that situation situation the right way. And that you're standing up for something. And people will see that. People will recognize that. And I think that's something that's really important in today's media.
0: I think it's important to point out, too, it's not always the super extreme either, right? Like, obviously, people that comment on articles on the internet are the worst kinds of people. I think we can all agree on that sometimes with Mm -hmm. what they have to say, because they're not going to say that in real life. But it is helpful to bring that to light to people because there is probably a huge swath in the middle that isn't really aware of it or some of the biases that they have like you know if they are talking about blaming Tomlin a little bit more than they used to do with Bill Cower that's something to bring up because you're like hey i never really thought of it that way i was just you know everybody talks this way so you know everybody talks this way so i haven't really realized that i'm not putting the credit where the credit is due um, in certain situations. So I, for me, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. A lot of it is just kind of pointing out some of these things that maybe people don't see because it's not affecting them every
1: single day. Exactly. And that, and I think that's the thing is that when we start conversations, especially conversations that, that, that race is present and then people say, well, this isn't about race. I'm like, well, actually it is. And the reason is because, it's assumed that this situation is race neutral, but it's not because you're treating you're talking about this group of people this way and that group of people a different way. And that is where I think that it's important to call it because like you said, it's not it's you know, it's not something like it's it's not the South where you know in the in the you know, in the days when segregation was obvious and it was colored and white that that is not the base of racism anymore. oftentimes race the biggest racist issues that I think we need that we have to tackle today is when it's assumed that something's race neutral, but it definitely isn't because then when black people speak up about it, it's like, well, wait, wait, there's no there's no color to white sign there. That's not a race issue. Like, Yes, it is. This is systemic. This is something that's been set up. This is something that's been a narrative that's been painted for years. I mean, you know, black quarterbacks not being smart enough, black head coaches not being smart enough, those types of things. And I'm just talking about a simple a, a sports atmosphere, let alone economic, social and, 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 and all the different and political issues, but specifically just sports. Those are things where, you know, things become accepted, like you said, and and we all become to just think, oh, yeah, that's the way people, uh, you know, think. And that's the way that it is. That's where we have to challenge and finding those spots. It can be difficult. It takes time to study. That's why I try to I read, I listen, I I watch, I try to take in other people who I think that like the way that they approach something, the way they analyze, the way they think. I'm like, I need to incorporate that, those, those styles, those points into what I do so that we are we are combating those narratives. we are combating those institutions and those dogmas because I, I think that if there's a there's there's a big world out there that listens to us. and when we introduce that into our work, more people can take that into their everyday. And that gives more people to think about. And that's, I think, how we make, that's why we use our jobs to make the world a better place.
0: All right, Chris, before we end the show, we do want to highlight an organization that we're working with in an effort to support paving the way for future generations based with less favorable opportunities. State Farm and Locked On will be giving a donation to the incredible organization Everyone On for every host we feature on this series. Chris, this week for you, thank you so much. The mission of Everyone On is to unlock opportunity by connecting families and underserved communities to affordable internet. Internet services and access, giving them digital literacy training as well. By doing that, they create significant positive change in communities and society as a whole. So a big thank you to our good neighbors at State Farm for their support on behalf of our hosts and helping pave the way for so many others in our communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And of course, Chris, we appreciate you for sharing your journey here on Paving the Way. State Farm and Lockdown Network share a common goal, helping to make our communities a better place. State Farm is committed to helping amplify individuals and organizations that lead the way in diversity, inclusion, and social good. Because we know that investing in community building and uplifting diverse voices is crucial to creating a sense of belonging. State Farm is proud to sponsor the Paving the Way series and celebrate the change makers that have paved the way in making our neighborhoods a better place for everyone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Subscribe to Locked On Presents and follow along as we highlight Locked On voices from across our network all year long.